Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Canadian Broadcasting Corporation contributor and host of the Burn It All Down pod, Shireen Ahmed. We're talking to her about a new law passed by the French Senate that has banned the wearing of the hijab in sports or any sort of uh, Muslim uh, head covering or scarves or anything of the sort. Um, it's highly bigoted. It's a little bit scary or a lot of bit scary. And Shireen is going to break it down. Also, I've got some choice words about the story that's roiling the sports world. Uh, Brian Flores's lawsuit. I also have just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Shireen Ahmed. Shireen, I go to CNN's website. I see an article, the French Senate has already passed a hijab ban in sports. This is really shocking for people who might not know anything about France. And it's historical perspective on Islam. It's fetishization of what they refer to as you know secularism. Uh, for our audience, though, could you speak a little about why this is, of all places, why this is happening in France? Yeah, and I'm glad you you clarified that because for me, one of the first things I think of when I think of France is not like Champagne or Amandine, it's xenophobia. Mm-hmm. So um, I, those of us that are in the space are quite familiar with, you know, particularly these attacks on Muslim women. And I say that very specifically because this isn't the first time. I mean, France has effectively banned civil participation in civil society with women who choose to wear a job. Uh, a headscarf. And this is an extension of that. So this particular proposal, this uh, proposal to ban hijab from sports for women and girls, it had to be passed. It was passed from the first chamber. So it had to be passed from what is known as the Conseil Constitutionnel, which is the second chamber. And that did not happen. So they've taken it back and reworded it and hit it again on the 9th and the 10th. 
So this fight is not over. And, you know, the French are relentless with their racism. So I don't believe it was over. And so essentially, this is a, a, a targeting, as I said, of Muslim women. But it's it's very specific to use this shield of secularism and what they called laissez-faire. So they don't want any religious objects anywhere near sports, supposedly. But then you're like, well, what about all the players that play in, you know, the French league that make the sign of the cross before going on the pitch? What about all the tattoos? What about all the other things? But that's fine. That doesn't seem to be a problem. So this is, you know, this is a continuation of, like you said, fetishization and exotification, but also a control very specifically on women's bodies. Hmm. What do you say to the, the so? I mean, I've seen so-called self-named feminists, uh, particularly in Europe, celebrating this, promoting this, saying this is a step forward for feminism. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the problems with that are manifest, but I wanted to give you the space to speak to that. Um, I think the problem that I have with all of this is that, you know, this isn't about sport and the, pro- like the, the more significantly, this particular proposed ban, if that happens and it does get passed, um, and, and I want to, you know, specify that Emmanuel Macron is not, his particular party is not supporting it. But that doesn't mean that they're supportive of, you know, choice of women to wear hijab or to cover in whatever way they want. We remember 2017 when women wanted to do the most French thing ever and sit on the beaches, uh, you know, in Côte d'Azur, and like their burkinis were literally ripped off. Mm. And so this idea of feminists coming forth and saying we want to ban oppression and the hijab is, you know, it, it is oppressive because it comes from an oppressive faith. Well, I mean, do we see someone going up to a nun and saying the same thing? No, we don't. So it's this complete, there's hypocrisy here. And furthermore, it's this complete white savior mentality. How is the feminism of feminism when it ignores choice? Feminism implies choice. And that is being stripped away. So, I mean, this, and so that's why, you know, you have these women, and particularly largely white women, arguing that Muslim women shouldn't have a choice. And they're saying, well, in Iran and Saudi Arabia and all these places, women don't have a choice. But we're not talking about Iran and Saudi Arabia. We're literally talking about France. And in, for example, Iran and Saudi Arabia, women can actually wear hijab and play soccer and play sports. They won't be able to do that in France. So let's not conflate this with geopolitical location. This is about France being a racist ass racist, and that's literally what it is. You know, I've noticed that it's been a bit of a, a moving uh, justification that they've been <laughs> making. No matter what article I'm reading, there there are quotes of people who support the bill who say it's about secularism, and then others who say it's about encroaching Islamism, or it's the Olympic Charter, or it's safety. Uh, one of the, the the safety argument to me seems the oddest. Like, what what do you make of that? I mean, is is there any basis for saying that safety is something that should be part of this discussion? Well, I mean, I'm somebody who you know played soccer for a really long time, and I've been scratched by rings. I've had ponytails whipped in my face. Like, I, all that stuff has happened. But I spent a very long time, and you know this isn't my first time in this particular rodeo. I've been in like tracking and I instances of danger or injury to players who were hijab or opponents. Do you know how many I found? You know how many I found because we've talked about this. Zero. So 
there's literally none. And all of this work had been done. And I wrote an article, uh, a column rather, for CBC Sports talking about this. There were literally no federations that in football in particular, or even basketball now, that have cited hijab being dangerous. And this work was done by IFAB. It was actually done in a medical laboratory to test, which is why FIFA demanded prototypes of a particular kind of hijab that is acceptable. And, you know, it was done by Capsters and Resport On at the time it was called Resport On. Um, So there's prototypes created by women to be able to have Velcro so it could come off quite easily, right? So the the medical thing doesn't have any legs to stand on. It really doesn't. And, And when we're talking about safety, it is an excuse. So they'll say all kinds of excuses, which is exactly what FIFA did many years ago. They, when, when they were met with objection, with the secularism, and then fine, tell all your football players from Latinx countries to cover up their tattoos and not to put the cross on, that wasn't going to fly. Mm-hmm. No, so they, fly. no, it wasn't going to fly. I mean, you have Kaka getting on his knees, taking off his shirt, you know? And like, I believe in Jesus too, but like, you know, you can't say that he can do that and other people have to be secular. So this is... The, the goalposts, you're right, shift constantly. And that's that's what we're seeing. And it's it's interesting because this is not new. And I don't think your listeners might be aware that although the hijab ban by FIFA was lifted in 2014, and I was on your show back then to talk mm-hmm. about it, FIFA <clears throat> has not sort of penalized the Fédération de football française, the FFF, for upholding a hijab ban. So despite that being allowed, Women in France to this day are not allowed to play, to officiate, to manage a team or participate in a high-performance staff role anywhere. So this is a continuation of that exclusion. My concern with this new proposed ban is it's going to disproportionately affect young Muslim girls and women because of the fact that if they can't participate in sport at any level with the hijab on, they can't pass physical education curriculums. They can't, they can't pass school. They won't be able to graduate. It's going to affect them at every level. This was a very intentional and very cruel proposal specified to derail the opportunities for Muslim girls and women. What does the movement look like against this? Uh, what are Muslim women doing? What are what has there been any solidarity of which to speak among male athletes or non-Muslim athletes? What what are we seeing in France? Anything? So, I mean, very specifically, uh, my hope, and you know this, would be for Zinedine Zidane to come out and start talking about it, which I don't think will ever happen. Now, the, the challenge here with national-level players that play for France is that they're considered civil servants, and they're contractually obligated to not speak out. Wow. So then, you know, we look at people like Lilian Turam, we look at other people, we look at influencers. Like Lisa Zimush is a freestyle footballer who has been very vocal. She has a huge social media following and she identifies as North African, which I think is really interesting because she's actually a second or third generation person born in France, but she still considers herself North African, which, you know, is sort of self, you know, it exposes how people are made to feel in France who are from, you know, North African and West African communities. So the movement is the movement. I love social media for this reason. You know, just within the over the last weekend, there's over, oh my goodness, I think it's over 15,000 at least that have signed the change.org petition. There was a club of young women, like a collective called Les Hijabos, and they worked with this organization called, you know, Alliance Citoyenne and the CCIE. The CCIE 
is actually an organization that monitors Islamophobia in, in, in France and in French-speaking countries. And there's women, um, Maryam Sibyl, who I've been contacting with and giving me updates on what to do. And at this point, it's about disseminating the information. It's about letting people know. Do I want Pino or Subaru to get up and be like, this is bullshit? Yes, absolutely. We're like, you know, it's, it's trying to be done. Like people are trying, people are reaching out to, to, to everybody. I was in France, I was invited by FAIR Network to go have, be at Diversity House to talk about this. In 2019, France hosted the largest world celebration of football for women, while at the same time being a country that didn't allow a specific demographic to participate. And nobody knew about it. And I think that's the problem here. When people find out about it, they're like, what the, like, what the hell? Because it's unfathomable that this could be done, but it is being done. And the biggest enemy for this type of oppression is knowledge of the people. And the people find out. And I wouldn't, you know, sometimes uh, folks are like, well, social media is stupid. It's this, it's that. You know, it can actually be quite effective in pushing for change and for demanding change and for I'm all for the power of TikTok, Dave. I'm mm-hmm. all here. I'm all here for it. And, you know, young folks and, and, and there's something about this generation that is not going to tolerate this type of oppression. They're just not going to. That's uh, a theme on this show, for sure. Talking about that young generation. Um, so give give us a call of where you think this is heading. Uh, from here in France. I mean, the works, as you mentioned at the start, are gummed up a bit. Um, do you think, though, that this will become a law? They'll have to significantly change the language in order for that to happen. And I think that if it does happen, it will be temporary because there will be calls for the IOC to strip France. And while I'm no fan of the IOC, I think it's important to say that the steps and the retribution against this, because this ban, in fact, is against the players' charter and the charter for sport. It's antithetical to that. So how can France seek to host when they're excluding very, like many, many athletes who do wear, who choose to wear the job? And, you know, I think that's that's kind of what it is. It's using what you have in the system to combat it. Like I'm you know, I'm not a fan of using the IOC as a, you know, part of the arsenal here. But like if it pushes them to say, OK, we have to reassess because at the end of the day, this is about money and it's about power. And if, you you know, someone says we're going to take that away from you, that might that might shake things up a little bit. I have no faith in that France will come to its senses and stop being racist. They're relentless in their anti-Muslim sentiment. They're relentless in their gendered Islamophobia. But if we can cause a bump in the road for that process, I'd, I'd be happy. And I would be happy if more athletes and sports organizations showed solidarity. Like, this isn't something that I think we need to look at and go, what's the problem over there? I live in Canada. And Quebec has effectively started something similar. They mirror what they consider their motherland of France. Like, I mean, Bill 21 in Canada has said that, you know, women can't work in, in, in public spaces wearing hijab. This isn't far off. And, you know, this, if you don't speak out against it, you're complicit in it. And, oh. you know, I, 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 that's the way that I feel about this. And some may say, well, that doesn't apply. Why can't people just take it off? But that's actually not the point. If you want to talk like someone telling me that I can't wear what I want to is unacceptable. 
and forcing women out of clothing is as violent as forcing them into it. And that's that's the bottom line here. You know, you, you mentioned something that uh, I think is so important is that the Olympics in Paris 2024, um, it makes it difficult to see how this would pass before 2024 without it being an unbelievable shit show heading into the Olympics. That has to be part of Macron's calculus on this, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I'm not out here suggesting that he's anything but interested in money for, you know, acquiring money. And as we know, and you've dived into very deeply, like these mega events are at the peril of people within the society. Like they don't do anything except line the pockets of rich men. That's that's what happens here. So but again, those rich men are the ones who make these decisions. And at, you know, you know, save the voices of a few white women who are saying, well, we need to protect Muslim women from this oppression. Muslim women don't need you to save them. Like, sit down. Nobody needs you to save them. So go find another cause because this one ain't it. And I, again, I agree with you. I don't think Macron's interest is, is to support Muslim women. But at the same time, France is full of contradictions. Look at the makeup of their men's team. Look mm. at the makeup of people from immigrant and Muslim experience. Are you kidding me? So mm. they're going to start banning. So what? They're going to ban people? But like some of the players from those teams, their own mothers wore hijab or their sisters wore hijab and they can't play football. This is atrocious. Like this is this is so hypocritical in every particular sense. France will use Muslims to benefit them. And the glory of that nation of football has come from the feet of North African and West African players historically. So, you know, I've, I have no patience with them. Mm. Is there anything in this story that we're missing? Anything that you'd like to share with us? Any observations? Any Anything whatsoever that I haven't asked you that you want to express? Well, I think I would love for people not to underestimate the power of a signature somewhere, the power of sharing over social media, the power of you know, raising the voices of, uh, you know, les hijabers. I would encourage you to follow them on social media, on Twitter. I know they're all active on IG. It does make a difference. Those, that, those viewerships, those sharing, those retweets, those repostings, they're powerful because it says that people stand in solidarity with them. And as much as Twitter and Instagram can be a cesspool of bad things, it can also be a very powerful tool in resistance. And I think that we shouldn't you know, underestimate that. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in a collective and global movements. And I mean, I work on things largely in Europe and in, in, in Asian countries, but I'm based in somewhere else. And so, you know, I think that this is possible because of the age that we live in, but it's also an opportunity. And, and we look at anti-oppression, like why would we and it gives us an opportunity to learn at the same time. Like Muslim women are not a monolith. I'm not out here excusing the fact that in places women don't have a choice. That's what's not. That's the biggest criticism I get. I'll say, well, women should, if they want, they should be able to wear hijab. The first thing I get back is, you know, Saudi Arabia, they don't have a choice. And I agree that that's violence also. I don't think religious, you know, you know, this rigidity is, is necessary or I think it's violence in itself. But that's the, that's the very shallow critique that I get. But what I'm trying to say is you either support women's choice to dress the way they want to or you don't. Mm, so exactly. and, and it is that simple. Like you can't be like, well, I don't agree and I'm critical of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so am I. I still choose to wear hijab because my hijab is a very personal, very personal spiritual choice and practice has mm. nothing to do with anything else. I keep I mean, first of all, I don't listen to men to begin with as a general personal practice. 
So this was certainly my own choice. And we have to afford women that choice. No, exactly. Well, Shireen, so glad. Thank you so much for coming on and clarifying so much about this issue. It's critically important. We're going to keep following it um, here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, what are the best resources for people who want to follow this on their own, who want to put that signature down, who don't just want to be passive observers to this? Again, follow Le Hijabers. You can follow CCIE. Um, I think it's CCIE underscore Europe on Instagram, but CCIE on Twitter. If you see, you know, people talking about it, the hashtag is let us play. Um, so look for that and look for, for people that are, there's a great article on CNN um, the other day. Uh, and you were quoted in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be fair about this. That, that pool of expertise is, is not huge. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm no, someone. Your quotes were totally money. They were terrific. <laughs> Thank you. You're biased, but also, yeah, I've been doing this work for a while and I'm, I'm at the one hand, I've been yelling about this for so long and you were one of the only people many, many years ago that cared to talk to me in 2014. We're talking about this is still happening. And when we let injustice continue, that's a failure of society. So I would love for people to pay attention. And again, don't underestimate. I would love to see young Muslim men take up this mantle and not speak for Muslim women, but amplify it. I would love to see all young folks care about this. And then just last question, Shireen, what music are you listening to as you're going through the struggle? What's on oh, your playlist? I actually I am so glad you asked this question because I am currently obsessed with Fireboy, <laughs> like West African King. I'm here with Peru. I, I love that song. I'm just, you know, my Afrobeat hits are just what's getting me through the day. I'm that's absolutely what I'm doing. It's, it's work is a busy time. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it heightens and elevates the mood for sure. You can feel that warmth on yourself as you listen to this music. Hey, whatever gets you through the day, that's what I say. <laughs> yeah. For real. Um, Shireen, thank you so much for making the time. I really do appreciate it. Oh, what's your social uh, handles so people can follow you? Yeah, I, I live on Twitter. You, you know this. So it's at underscore Shireen Ahmed underscore. And my Instagram is at Fitty Bedsheets. And yeah, so I'm over those. I'm trying to I'm trying to get into the world to TikTok because like it's it's it moves so fast. And by the time I learn the choreography of a dance, it's past the, the trend. So and and you know, I also have you know, I, I do like to do anything to mortify my children. So they're absolutely yeah. like, please stay away from TikTok. So you know I'm gonna go there. Yeah, and I'm not allowed to look at TikTok <laughs> in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone be on TikTok. You know what? We should actually do a TikTok together and absolutely mortify all the children's. <laughs> I love it. Anything to mortify the children's. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on, Dave. Be well. You too. We'll be back right after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, inside the owners' boxes of the National Football League, the emperors have been walking around buck naked for decades. And Brian Flores is simply past done in pretending that they're wearing clothes. The former Miami Dolphins head coach has issued a thunderclap of a lawsuit on the first day of Black History Month, no less, accusing the National Football League of systemic racism in the hiring of coaches and executives. He also calls out the Rooney Rule, the league directive by which NFL owners are compelled to sit down with one quote-unquote minority candidate for hiring cycle as a performative sham that has produced nothing except a frayed window dressing. Flores has recently been living on the losing end of the lie that the NFL gives a damn about diversity in their ranks. He just finished his second consecutive winning season in Miami, and it marked the first time that the hapless Dolphins have had consecutive winning seasons in almost 20 years. Flores even brought the team back from a 1-7 start to a winning record, the first NFL coach to ever accomplish that feat. And yet, to the shock of the league, he was fired. On his way out the door, all sorts of unnamed sources trashed Flores' reputation, characterizations that were laundered by the NFL's meek, dutiful, and altogether canine embedded media. That ham-handed slandering brought Flores to the brink. What, based upon his lawsuit and the chronology of events may have pushed him over, was a sham Rooney Rule interview with the New York Giants, an organization like seven of the 32 NFL teams has never hired a black head coach. And this is a very interesting story in and of itself because Flores's former boss, Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, he sent a text to congratulate uh, Brian Dabble, the person who was actually hired, another Brian, young white assistant with not nearly Brian Flores's resume, And he sent the text to Brian Flores by mistake before Brian Flores even had his interview. It was a sham interview and Flores was done with it. He was done with a league that currently has one black head coach despite 70% of all players being black Americans. He also clearly knows that by issuing his lawsuit, his time in the league has almost certainly met its end. The NFL doesn't take kindly to whistleblowers or the people pointing out how grotesque they can look when the lights are on bright. In a statement, Flores said, God has gifted me with a special talent to coach the game of football, but the need for change is bigger than my personal goals. In making the decision to file the class action complaint today, I understand that I may be risking coaching the game that I love and that has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. Now, you might think the NFL would respond to this lawsuit with some humility. Perhaps they would announce their own internal investigation to see if black coaches are being unfairly excluded from the top jobs. 
But this is the NFL we're talking about, plutocratic and right-wing to its very soul. And they'll be damned if they're going to be told by the help who they can or cannot hire. Their response before any serious examination of Flores' charges is that the case is without merit. They're not even going to investigate the claim made by Flores that Miami Dolphins franchise owner Stephen Ross offered him a hundred grand for every game that he would tank so they could get a high draft pick. If you feel a slight spray on your cheeks, that's 31 billionaires spitting in your face and telling you it's raining. I keep thinking about a tweet three weeks ago by longtime Sports Illustrated and NFL.com reporter Michael Silver, who wrote, there is systemic racism in the NFL and there are actual racists in some positions of power. I'm done dancing around the ladder. Clearly so is Brian Flores. The next critical step is going to see just who in the NFL is done dancing and will instead stand with Flores and finally air out the racism in the building. He comes from the New England Patriots coaching tree. Will Belichick and the rest of the branches hold a press conference in support of Flores and his character? Will the NFL's so-called social justice committee stand with Flores? Will players who spoke out against racism outside the NFL point their finger inside the tent? This is a moment where silences will speak volumes. Here's hoping they've all learned the lesson of Colin Kaepernick. Unless you are a crypto right-wing anti-vaxxer white quarterback, speaking out is not allowed, especially about the racialized labor discipline of the NFL. A discipline that demands everyone just accept that this will be a league of black talent controlled by white authority. The Kaepernick lesson is that they will disappear you unless you respond with solidarity and support inside the league itself. This could be the most significant fork in the road for the NFL's racial practices since the league integrated 75 years ago. Or the league can fall back into its racist slot. Prevent that players coaches, and everyone in the NFL world who gives a damn needs to find the courage within themselves being exhibited by Brian Flores. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! This week goes to Brian Flores, of course. I think what he's doing is easily the most important move towards racial justice or even some kind of even pretension towards racial equity uh, that the NFL has seen since integration 75 years ago. Uh, Colin Kaepernick's work was beyond important, but let's remember, Colin Kaepernick was pointing outside the tent, as as he should have been. You know, police violence is a serious problem. Racist police killings need to be confronted. Brian Flores is pointing inside the tent. And we're going to see how that works out for him from an employment perspective. 
But this is, as Brian Flores said himself, this is bigger than Brian Flores. And it's just the fact that he understands that. And he understands that this is about future generations and whether or not they'll have the opportunities that he's being denied. I mean, that's really what it's all about. So Just Stand Up Award, of course, goes to Brian Flores. Stand up! The Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down is actually preemptive. And maybe this speaks to a little bit of my pessimism about the culture of the NFL, is that all colleagues of Brian Flores, all players, and I'm talking about players, black, white, but especially white former colleagues in the coaching fraternity, as they call it, people who worked with Flores, people part of the Belichick family tree. If you don't stand with Flores right now, sit down for eternity. This is a preemptive sit your ass down. Sit your ass down, although I guess they're sitting anyway because they're not standing up with Flores. So sit your ass deep into that couch and don't get up until you grow up a little bit or a lot of bit. And I'm talking to you, Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels, Charlie Weiss. I mean, the, 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 the crew needs to stand up for Brian Flores. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Shereen Ahmed for joining us. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, mask up, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>